Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, and we want everyone to see the passage that we'll be considering, so these brothers have some Bibles as they make their way to the back, get their attention, and they'll get a Bible to you that is marked at Matthew chapter 5. Last year, one of the boys who attended our vacation Bible school was having such a good time that he told me, you know, it should be like this every Sunday. There was so much excitement and fun in that once-a-year event that this young man wanted it to be the case all the time, and understandably so, from a child's perspective. Children always want cotton candy, never vegetables. They want, what they want is fun and frivolity, and they usually do not see the need for what is more serious and sober as children. And so it's all to be expected from children. And even for adults, the Bible says this, a cheerful heart is good medicine. And that's why it's good for us to laugh from time to time and even in church and to show videos with funny pictures and your pastor on the chairlift with all of his friends, that would be me alone. But notice what that verse says. Notice what a cheerful heart does. It administers medicine. And that's because there's something wrong that needs healing. And the Bible commends the recognition of and the dealing with what is wrong. Not simply putting on a happy face and acting as though it's not there. And yet, almost unbelievably, the face of evangelical Christianity for many today is the, quote, smiling preacher, Joel Osteen, who brags that he does not talk about sin and writes a best-selling book, Your Best Life Now. One has said, if this is your best life now, that means you're going to hell. And many, many Christians have this happy, life-is-Disney painted on smile that belies the realities of life in a fallen world. But here's what Jesus said in that most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Notice verse 4 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the second of the eight what we call Beatitudes that we saw at the beginning of this series. A Beatitude comes from a Latin word that means blessing, these eight blessings. And the second of those eight comes right after the first one in verse 3 that says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And these two are related. Because seeing that we are poor in spirit, sinful and spiritually bankrupt, should give rise to mourning over sin. And so John Stott says this, this is the second stage of spiritual blessing. It's one thing to be spiritually poor and to acknowledge it. It's another to grieve and to mourn over it. Confession is one thing, he says. Contrition is another. And Jesus issues a solemn warning to those who take a child's approach to life that everything is laughter and fun and frivolity. 
In Luke chapter 6, Luke has his version of the Sermon on the Mount. Most of us are familiar with the one we're going through in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But Luke has an abbreviated version. And in that sermon, Luke notes the woes that Jesus pronounced. And one of those was this, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. So, dear friends, it's important for us in these sacred moments together to think about what God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, says about this issue of mourning and the comfort that comes to those and only to those who are willing to mourn. And so we have inserted in your program an outline as we do each week. I call your attention to that. And I've got three major points I'd like to make from Matthew 5 and verse 4. The first is this. Christian sorrow is comprehensive. Christian sorrow is comprehensive. And it's comprehensive, I say, in a couple of ways in that outline. The first is this, that Christian sorrow over the sin of the world. So Christian sorrow is all-encompassing. It's comprehensive. And first of all, because it sees the sin of the world. And when we do this, it's in keeping with many of the biblical writers. For example, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. The prophet Ezekiel said, those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done, these are those that the Lord finds as his faithful people. And I ask you, friends, how can we but weep when we see what should be a haven of security in the womb transformed into a chamber of death for the unborn? How can we not weep when we live in a culture that calls good what God calls abominable? When the definition of marriage is perverted to accommodate perversion. When alcohol and drugs ravage lives that are searching for meaning and satisfaction outside of God. And that litany could go on and on. And we live in that kind of fallen world. And when we are attuned to what sin is in us and what sin does to us and to others, and we observe it in God's world, Jesus says, blessed are those who see that. Blessed are those who mourn. I say in your outline, Christian sorrow is comprehensive because it sees the sin of the world, but also Christian sorrow over the sin of the church. Christian sorrow over the sin of the world, just out there, just living in a fallen world. But then those who are tuned to what God says in His Word have to be sorrowful for what they see going on in the church. You see, dear friend, Christian does not necessarily equate to biblical. One can take the moniker, take the name Christian, and yet at the same time not follow the Bible. And that can be true in our own lives and it can be in churches as well. Do not be naive, dear Christian friend, to think that everything with the label Christian is in line with the Bible. Christians, though, too often are quite naive. John MacArthur has said that believers in our day have lost their ability to discern. And yet in the first century church 2,000 years ago, it was similar. You had churches and you had purveyors of false teaching in those churches. 
And over that there was lament, there was mourning. The great apostle Paul said this to a church that he had planted and to which he wrote, As I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. In the last chapter of the last letter that the great apostle wrote before he laid his head on an executioner's block and was martyred for Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 4, at the end of his life, he tells young Timothy this, The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. That's in the church. It's amazing that you could see stadiums filled with people. A church led by a man who says, I do not preach about sin people already have enough difficulty in their lives. And yet God's Word uses the word sin and sinner and sinned and sinful and sinning and all of its cognates over a thousand times. How can you preach the Bible and not touch on sin? And so the apostle had to write to some of those first century churches and remind them that they need to be filled with sorrow and lament and mourn over sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you should have been filled with grief, he says, over a particular sinful incident that occurred in that church. And then in a second letter to that same church, he says, I'm afraid that when I come, I will be grieved over many who have sinned and have not repented. So here's the great apostle saying, I grieve when I see people who profess Jesus but who are openly sinning and then doing so without repentance. Christian sorrow is comprehensive because it sees the fallen world around us and then it sees, unfortunately, many of the unbiblical things that happen in what passes for church. But I say secondly in your outline, Christian sorrow is not only comprehensive, it's personal. Christian sorrow is personal. You see, friends, it's one thing to look at the world or to look at the state of the church in general and to be saddened by that. That's something that we ought to do. But that's one thing. It's quite another thing to mourn our own sin, our own individual personal sin. Some of us are easily angered at other people's sin. But anger is simply confessing, hear this, another person's sin to myself. Anger is confessing another person's sin to myself. Just over and over again rehearsing what an idiot that person is or those people are to myself and becoming angry over it when in fact I ought to be confessing my own sin to myself and to the Lord. And that's what we find throughout Scripture. Ezra chapter 10, the Bible says, Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. A large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Men, women, children. Their leader, Ezra. The great apostle, again, Paul, says autobiographically of himself in Romans chapter 7, What a wretched man I am. 
Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thomas Cranmer, he was a leader of the English Reformation of nearly five centuries ago, said in his remarks before a communion service, Lord, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. One commentator has said this rightly, I fear that we evangelical Christians, by making much of grace, sometimes thereby make light of sin. There is not enough sorrow for sin among us. We should experience more godly grief of Christian penitence, he says. And yet many who claim to follow Jesus will not refuse to face their sin. And my fear is this, dear friends. My fear is the reason that we cannot and will not face our sin is because that sin is still as yet uncovered. It is still as yet unatoned for. It is still as yet unpaid for. You say, how can that be? I thought Christian sins were all paid for past, present, and future. Ah, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Christians' sins. And not every church member is a Christian. Signing on the dotted line and being baptized does not make you a Christian. One of the signs of a Christian is that he or she understands that their sin has been paid for, it has been covered, it is atoned for, and therefore I can face it. Therefore I can admit it. Therefore I can deal with it. I've had a man once tell me that though he had been married for well over 20 years, he had yet to ever hear his wife say, I'm sorry for anything. I wonder if there are any here to whom that kind of thing applies. Can't admit that I was wrong. Can't admit that I sinned. My great fear is that when that is the case with an individual, it is because his or her sin has not been covered by Jesus. And therefore, they are trying to atone for it themselves. We'll see some examples of that in a bit. And so I say, you show me a person who will not face her sin. Show me a person who cannot be lovingly confronted with sin. And I will show you a person who has never known the joy of forgiveness that comes in Jesus. Christian sorrow is comprehensive. It sees sin of the world. It sees sin in the church. But Christian sorrow is also individual and personal. And I say thirdly in your outline. Christian sorrow is productive. Christian sorrow is productive. That is, when rightly understood and when rightly applied, this mourning of which Jesus speaks produces good results. Christian sorrow is productive. It has a, I say in the outline, godly motivation. A godly motivation. Everyone has times of grief when they experience loss. And it's right and necessary to express emotion at those times. One author has said, 
There's healing in natural weeping. Doctors and psychologists have helped us to understand what really happens when we mourn. Natural sorrow expressed in mourning releases a healing process in a person's life that enables him to accept the pain, work his way through it, and adjust to life again. When pain is kept inside, it seems to poison the emotional system, the way an infection spreads through the bloodstream. I've heard well-meaning people say in funeral homes, now don't cry, you know she is better off. But the thing the person needs to do more than anything at that moment is to cry. This is God's way of helping them release the pressure and the pain inside, and it's perfectly proper. Some people have the idea that weeping is a sign of weakness. Self-pity is a sign of weakness, but not weeping. Jesus was the strongest man who ever walked on this earth, and he wept openly. So there's certainly good and healthy sorrow. The Bible says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. But sorrow that is not motivated by truth about life, now hear this, that's not motivated by truth about life and honesty about ourselves, that is sorrow that produces bad fruit in our lives. There is such a thing as unhealthy sorrow. So one commentator says this, psychologists who have studied bereavement tell us that unhealthy sorrow can have many causes. One major cause is selfishness. A self-centered person uses other people, even the closest loved ones, to make his own life safe and pleasant, and if he loses a loved one, it upsets his lifestyle and it hurts. His tears are more for himself than for the deceased. Fear is another cause for unhealthy sorrow. Fear of the future, fear of change, perhaps even fear of death itself. Excessive tears and mourning then become an invisible armor to protect the person from the hard knocks of life. That person is saying, don't lay any responsibility on me. Can't you see I have enough to bear already? But perhaps the greatest cause of unhealthy grief is guilt. It's our way of atoning for the past failures and sins in connection with one we've lost. Some people atone for their sins by purchasing expensive, elaborate funerals. This author says, I recall one lady who took her life savings, all she had, and bought her husband the most expensive casket available. She put her financial future into the grave with him. It was her way of saying to him, I'm sorry for the mean things I said and did while you were sick. He says, I think of another man who visited his wife's grave almost every day for months after her death, not as a sign of love, but as a work of atonement. He said it reminded him of the great English author Samuel Johnson, who stood in the rain with his head uncovered to atone for an act of disobedience to his father. We see this kind of unhealthy mourning that is not rightly motivated in Scripture, in the life of King David. King David illustrates this unhealthy sorrow that's caused by guilt. He had a disobedient son, many of you will remember, named Absalom. Absalom tried to take the kingdom away from David, and he almost succeeded. He secretly plotted against his father. He drove David from Jerusalem. He took over the palace, and then he planned to attack David's divided forces and utterly wipe them out. But instead, the Bible records that David won the battle and Absalom was slain. Now, before that battle, David had begged his leaders with these words. Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And then when he heard that Absalom had been slain, 
he says these famous words, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son, if only I had died instead of you. Now, would it really have been better for the nation that David die and the rebellious Absalom live? But David was not only grieving, but he was grieving in an unhealthy way because Absalom's death, now hear this, was part of the price that David paid for a horrible sin he had committed. You may recall that David committed adultery and had the woman's husband killed as a cover-up. Shortly thereafter, David was told a story about a rich man who stole the only lamb another man owned. And the Bible says David burned with anger when he heard this story, not knowing that it was about him and his wicked deed. And here's what David's response to hearing that. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay four times over because he did such a thing. Four times over. And did you know David paid four times over? The child born of the adulterous affair died. David's daughter Tamar was violated. His son Amnon was killed. And Absalom was also killed. Now I want you to see that David's mourning was unhealthy mourning. The Bible says that the soldiers were actually ashamed of the battle that they had won because it caused their king such sorrow. David refused to be comforted, even in the midst of this victory. Now why? Because David was seeking to atone for his sins. And as a result, he carried around this guilt. One of his men, one of David's men, told him bluntly, You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now this same David who's desperately trying to atone for his sin, and in the absence of being able to do that, which, by the way, dear friends, is impossible. And in the absence of that, then, he has this debilitating guilt. This same David did eventually get it, that he cannot atone for his sin. And so he wrote wisely and marvelously in Psalm 51, Lord, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He's acknowledging there's nothing I can do to atone for it. And all I can do, he finally came to realize, is come to you with the empty hands of faith. All I can bring to my relationship with you is my sin, dear Lord. Sometimes people are too defensive to deal with sin. And as I said earlier, my fear is that's an indication of someone who has never experienced forgiveness. Or it's someone who's trying to atone for it his or herself. And yet, godly sorrow for sin is a productive thing. If it's motivated properly. The Bible tells us this in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul, who wrote it, says, If I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Now, just stop there for a moment. 
We think causing anybody any sadness is the worst thing you could possibly do. And he says, if I caused you sorrow, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. And then he goes on to say, For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so not, were not harmed by us in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. When we cannot deal with sin, the effects of sin, our own sin, the effects of sin and the loss of someone, our own sin that we all have, when we cannot deal with it in a healthy way, hear this, it's because we have not dealt with God in a truthful way. <clears throat> so this Christian sorrow that is productive, it has godly motivation. It's a motivation that says, God, I have sinned against you, and I'm not trying to atone for it myself. I cast myself upon your mercy. But then I say lastly in your outline, it has godly results. <clears throat> godly results. R. Kent Hughes said this, It's a great thing when we see our sinful state for what it is apart from God's grace, and we begin to mourn its devastating dimensions in our souls and in our words and in our deeds, as described in Romans 3. Romans 3 describes our souls as sick. Let me go through these verses quickly. There is no one righteous, the Bible says, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worth, worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So the state of our souls is one of sickness because of sin. But then it goes on to say that the sin is revealed in the way we talk. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And then it goes on to say, this sickness that is sin within all of us not only manifests itself in our words, but then in our deeds as well. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace, they do not know. Now, I read that, and you all go, that ain't me. I'm not as bad as anybody described there. Well, that's describing the extremes of what sin leads us to, but the seed of sin, the state of sin, is stated in those opening verses. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good, not even one. And dear friend, that's you and that's me. In 1961, a survivor of a Nazi concentration camp, Yehiel Dinur, testified at the trial of a war criminal, Adolf Eichmann. Many of you know that name. When Denur entered the courtroom and he came face to face with Eichmann for the first time since Auschwitz almost 20 years earlier, he began to sob uncontrollably and then he fainted. Was he overcome by hatred or fear or horrible memories? Well, he was interviewed in 1983 on the TV news magazine 60 Minutes. And he said it was none of those. He explained that all at once he realized that Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. Instead, Eichmann was an ordinary man. Denur said, 
quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. The 60 Minutes correspondent, Mike Wallace, summed up what Denur said with these words. Eichmann is in all of us. It's a horrifying statement, but it captures the sinful truth about man's nature that as a result of the entrance of sin into God's world and into all of our hearts, sin in each of us, not just the susceptibility to sin, but sin itself is present within every one of us. So friend, in order to be a Christian, in the words that I used almost every week here, you must, quote, realize that you are a sinner. And that realization, if truly understood, means that but for the grace of God, but for the grace of God, I am capable of anything. It means that my sin is so dark that God himself had to die a horrific death to pay for it. It means that I put Jesus on the cross. It means that were I there but for the grace of God, I would have crucified him. This realization... And then the inevitable mourning for sin that follows means that I turn to the only hope I have. And friend, that is not in how good then you're going to be and your resolution to try harder and do better. It's not any of that. It is you casting yourself on the mercy of God himself. If you continue to try to atone for your own sin, you will have the misery that King David had. And so I cast myself at the foot of the cross of Jesus because it's there and only there that the enormity of sin has been dealt with. Our sin put him there. But his love for us kept him there as he paid the penalty for what we have done. Blessed are those who mourn for their sin for they will be comforted. First of all, they will be comforted at the cross. And because of that, I say in your outline, this productive Christian sorrow that is godly motivation and achieves godly results results in a couple of things. The first is this, salvation. It results in salvation. Pastor Warren Wiersbe says that when a person sees his spiritual bankruptcy, he can respond to it in one of four ways. Stay with me. He can deny that his bankruptcy exists, and like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, he can put on a front. But this leads to a life of deception in which we pretend that we're better than we are. That would be most people who go to church. Or secondly, he can admit his spiritual bankruptcy and try to change himself. But this is like the poor helping the poor. Or thirdly, he can admit his need and so despair over it that he gives up completely. This is the sorrow of the world that the Bible says produces death. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, saw what a sinner he was, and he went out and committed suicide. But the logical thing for a person to do when he sees his own spiritual need is to admit it and turn to God for what he needs. The person who is sincerely poor in spirit will mourn over himself and over his sins 
And through this morning, we'll experience the comfort of God. But we need to distinguish, friends, between repentance and remorse and regret. Repentance, remorse, and regret. When my consciousness of sin rests only in the intellect, only in my mind, that's regret. When it affects both my mind and my heart, it's remorse. But when concern over my sin brings me to the place where I'm willing to turn from it and obey God, when my concern affects my will as well as my mind and my emotions, then I have experienced true repentance. And that's what you see in the story Jesus told of the prodigal son. You all remember that? His mind, the prodigal's mind, told him his father's servants were better off than he was. And his heart made him feel the the sickness of the situation. And his will motivated him to arise and go to the father. Had he sat there in that pig pen thinking how foolish he had been, that would have been regret. Had he thought about his sins and hated himself for committing them, that would be remorse. But when he said, I will arise and go to my father, and actually did that, that was repentance. His sorrow was a godly sorrow that caused him to return home and experience forgiveness. Some of you know the name Charles Colson. He was one of the conspirators in the Watergate break-in. He served time in jail, and while he was in jail, or just after his time in jail, he was born again. He wrote a book by that name, Born Again, where he gives his, his testimony. And he lived out his days in service to Jesus Christ from 1974 on. And he says these words about his conversion. That night when I sat alone in my car, my own sin, not just dirty politics, but the hatred and evil so deep within me was thrust before my eyes forcefully and painfully. For the first time in my life, I felt unclean, and worst of all, I could not escape. In those moments of clarity, I find, found myself driven irresistibly into the arms of the living God. And that is what this morning for sin should do to each of us. Send us running to our God, God our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian sorrow is productive. It produces godly results. One of those results is salvation. In your outline I say, it also results in sanctification. Sanctification. That is, after we are saved, after we come to Christ, after that initial giving of life that he bestows upon us, like Charles Colson experienced, now there is the Christian life to be lived. And sanctification is a fancy term for us being continually set apart from the world and to God, becoming like Christ day after day. The verb mourn used in Matthew 5 and verse 4 is the most intense of nine different words for mourning in the New Testament. And it was written, you know, your New Testament was written in Greek. And this verse is written in Greek in such a way that it's a continuous action. Blessed are those who continually mourn. For those who have come to the cross for forgiveness of sin, we continue to grieve over our sin. We rejoice that we've been accepted on the basis of Jesus' life and death for us, but we still mourn that we put him in there and that we continue to sin. You may remember that the great Apostle Paul, 
when he was far along in his Christian life, referred to himself as the chief of sinners. So this morning, friends, is not something we only have at the outset of our relationship with Christ, but it's ongoing and it's an essential part of our growth in godliness. Unless I see my sin for what it is, I will not be motivated to mortify it, to kill it in my life. Instead, I may be like many church-going people who prayed a prayer of forgiveness at some point in the past, but for whom sin has become no big deal. One commentator said this about the way we deal with our sin. We must beware of an easy and comfortable dealing with our sins. We see this casual approach in the, in, to sin in the life of King Saul in the first part of your Bible in 1 Samuel 15. God had given King Saul explicit instructions to go to battle with a certain nation and take everything they had. But that narrative tells us that Saul only destroyed the weak and the useless and he kept the cattle and other property that he deemed useful. He had sinned directly against the command of the Lord and yet at first that chapter tells us he lied about it. He said, quote, I have done all that the Lord has commanded. And then he made an excuse saying it was the people who disobeyed God, not him. He even used religion to defend his sin. Now get this, he said he would use the very cattle he was supposed to destroy as sacrifices to the Lord. And even after the priest Samuel exposed Saul's sin, he persisted in defending himself and blaming others. And when he finally said the words, I have sinned, he still had a condition. He said, quote, yet honor me now before the people of Israel. So very many professing Christians are like Saul. They refuse to own up to their sin. Instead, friends, we should be like King David. We saw the trouble he had when he tried to atone for his own sin. But he came to a point of true repentance when he said this after all that he had done in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Repenting of our sins as Christians means more than, friends, admitting them and trying to explain or excuse them. It means admitting them and looking at them the way God does. Hating them and turning away from them. And simply quoting 1 John 1.9 in a glib manner is not true repentance. What does 1 John 1.9 say? It says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. My friends, that promise is not an excuse for sin. It's an encouragement to believers who want to get rid of sin. The word confess in your New Testament means literally this, to say the same thing. So when we confess, we are saying the same thing about our sin that God says about it. We're seeing it from His perspective. No weasel words, no excuses, no explanations. I have sinned. I was wrong. And the result of that then, 
is the promise that's given in verse 4 of Matthew 5. They will be comforted. And that comfort is immediate. When it says they will be comfort, it's not saying only at some point in the future, but it's simply saying the comfort comes after the morning. So they mourn and they will be comforted. And just like the morning is a continual thing, so too is the comfort. But hear this, this is important. That comfort comes only to followers of Jesus. The word they in that sentence is emphatic. Blessed are those who mourn, for they are the ones, and they alone will be comforted. They are the ones who have experienced God's forgiveness, which in turn results in changed lives and reduces the sources of so much of the personal sorrow that we experience. Things like our arrogance and judgmentalism and selfishness and jealousy. This comfort then comes from within because those who mourn have been changed within. It also comes from the Holy Spirit. In fact, the word that's translated comforted here is the same word used of the Holy Spirit elsewhere. Some of you have heard this word before, paraclete. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter, Jesus said. That's the word used here. One who comes alongside another. So God's comfort is relational. It comes in the form of His companionship with those that are His. And He is our ally. He personally binds up our wounds and He consoles us. And in the life of the Christian, the one whose sin Jesus has fully covered and therefore they can face it and not try to atone it for it and not make excuses for it and not try to explain it away, for those people, God has this ongoing ministry in their lives of comforting them. And that will go on throughout their lives and it will culminate, says the Bible, in the second to the last chapter of your Bible, Revelation chapter 21, where it says this, He, our God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Pastor, this was such a pick-me-up kind of sermon. And I recognize the nature of the content of what I've said to you today. But you see, friends, it's necessitated by the words of the Lord Jesus himself. Blessed are those who mourn. Who mourn over their sin who mourn over the sin of the world, who mourn over the sin of the church, they are the ones who will be comforted now and in the future. Yes, Christians are people who have a good time. And thank God for the gift of laughter and companionship. But there is a time to mourn and a time to laugh. And I say in the take-home truth at the bottom of your outline, Christians are the saddest, most celebrant people in the world. Now, I have that in quotes. I wish it were mine. It's not. It's a quote from somebody else. Christians are the saddest, but most celebrant people in the world. They are people who mourn. They are saddened because of their sin. But they are people who run to the cross and they celebrate the fact that our God has forgiven us in the blood of Jesus. 
And in an ongoing way, yes, we are saddened and mourned because of our sin and the sin around us. But again, we run to the cross. Remember I mentioned the great apostle Paul in his autobiography in Romans chapter 7? O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You remember that? But then the next verse, he says this. Romans chapter 7 and verse 25. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the really cool thing about Romans 7 is it's followed by Romans 8. And the first verse of Romans 8 says this. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. I'm going to bow and pray. And let's take some time to confess our sin. And for those who have never confessed your sin, who have never owned it, who have never seen that you are so spiritually bankrupt that all you can do is come to God and say, I need you to do what I cannot do for myself, then this prayer right now is for you. And you pray to God in your own words, recognizing what we say on the screen. Realize that you are a sinner. Recognize that Christ did what you cannot do for yourself. He died for your sin. And repent. And remember, repentance is going a different direction. It's not just regret or remorse. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. In your words, acknowledging your sin and Him as the Savior. And I ask you, Lord, to save me. And the Bible says, he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, these are convicting and indeed sad words that you have had me speak to your people this day. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would work in each of our hearts to cause us to see the value of our mourning. It was the Lord Jesus, God the Son, who said, Blessed are those who mourn. Help us to resist the amusement of our culture. Amusement, failing to think. Literally what this word means. And Lord, in the words of one author, we're amusing ourselves to death. So help us to be people who think and think hard, and think even about those things that are unpleasant because they drive us to your grace and they drive us to the cross of Jesus. I pray that you will help me and help us as your people, as your church, to be people who mourn because of our sin and own it and deal with it because it's been covered and we can face it. I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would move on the hearts of some who have never come to the foot of the cross. Maybe some who are church members and have been for years. But have never recognized the enormity of their sin. And the covering that Jesus has made. Oh Lord, draw out of the world and to yourself souls that you are saving. That they might be lips and lives that praise you. For you indeed alone are worthy of all glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.